you have your Bibles handy, please open to the 17th Psalm. Psalm 17. It is good after a little while to be back with you again. Yeah, so many faces I remember and so many I was pleased to greet. I feel like your friends and brethren and then so many new faces that I've not met, which makes my pastor's heart rejoice. So thankful that Christ is really true to his word, isn't he? He will build his church and the gates of hell simply cannot prevail against her. Well, the word of God is so good. I was just thinking as we were singing, what a privilege it is to have this book. Right? This, this isn't promised to us. But we have it. We, we have it in our possession. So thanks be to God. Let's read His holy word this morning. I'll be reading Psalm 17 in its entirety. Though we'll be focusing on a single verse. Verse 15. So let's read the word. Of the living God. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the way of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Pray with me. Holy Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very God and Father that has gifted to us His perfect Son, 
his eternal son, his co-equal son, his almighty son, and given him to us as a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Lord, you have been so good and are so good to give us Jesus. And I pray now that you would turn our affections toward him, our hearts toward him, that even as we sang this morning, our attention would be fixated on him. Speak, O Lord. Holy Spirit, in all power and freedom, minister to this dear body today. Help us exactly where we need it. Especially, Lord, help us to live in light of eternity. Bless this word to us. Shape us and change us. Grant repentance where it is needed and give fresh faith. We thank you for this powerful word. We thank you for this appointed time together. Speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A bit of a step back into history, if you will bear with me. It was the year 1678. Yes, children, that's a long time ago. It was the year 1678 when in the 44th year of his life, I happen to relate to this, I'm 44 years old, the faithful Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Vincent began to fall ill. This was a man that was ordained to the ministry at the age of 20, who had spent these next 24 years of his life in laboring for Christ in the work of the ministry. It was said of Thomas Vincent that he was so committed to Scripture, such a lover of Scripture, that he had memorized the entire New Testament as well as the 150 Psalms. He felt that that if the king of England could take away his pulpit and put him in prison, then there might be a day that would come when the Bible could be taken away. And so he committed himself to memorization. This valiant lover of Jesus Christ labored and labored hard for his master. Well, 13 years earlier, when he's 31 years of age, the great plague comes to London. The year 1665, and Thomas Vincent, as a pastor at that time, stays in London to care for and minister to his flock, the sick and dying among his flock, risking his own life. In a plague where more than 68,000 London residents died, including seven within his own household, he would not leave Christ's people in order to flee for safety. He would stay and risk everything for the ones that he loved. Of his preaching during these months of the plague, a biographer recorded that his sermons came with such power that, quote, he didn't preach one sermon in which people were not being saved. But now we come to his 44th year in the scene of his death. And it's a moving scene, I believe a very fitting scene that I want to describe for you in light of this morning's theme. On the night before Thomas Vincent's death, with comfort and joy, he cried out to those gathered around him saying, 
farewell world. The pleasures, profits, and honors of this world. Farewell sin. I shall forever be with the Lord. Farewell my dear wife and my dear children. Farewell my spiritual children. That same night to those in his church that were gathered around his deathbed, he offered this bit of counsel. He said, be careful in your choice of a pastor. Choose one who in his doctrine, life and manners may adorn the gospel. I shall be glad to meet you all in heaven. With death quickly approaching, he cries out later that night, hasten, hasten, oh, hasten death. Where is your bow? Where are your arrows? Come, come, I'm yet in the body, I'm yet on earth, but it is heaven, heaven I would gladly be at. I seek death, but cannot find it. How long, O Lord, holy and true? Though under a doctor's care, at this time he couldn't reconcile the thought of actually recovering. To the doctor he said, why have you come? To keep me out of heaven. And lastly. In his great longing to be with Christ. He prayed this. Maybe his final prayer. Dear Jesus. Come and take me away. Be as a deer upon the mountains of spices. How long shall I wait and cry? How long shall I be absent from you? Oh, come and take me to yourself and give me possession of that happiness which is above. The vision of yourself, perfect likeness to yourself, full fruition of yourself, which is the greatest end. Oh, come, dear Jesus, how long before you send your chariots? Oh, come down to me and take me up to you. Thomas Vincent, at the end of his days, didn't suddenly, unexpectedly long for the face of Christ. No, this this holy longing, this unfulfilled hunger fueled every single day of that man's life. It's as though he died in the very way that he lived. Longing to be with Jesus Christ. This brother Saul, with a clarity that not many of us have today, he saw at the end of his race, at the finish line of his race, an open-armed Christ. And he was running with all his might to meet him. How is it with you, beloved? How is it with you? You see, the people of this world are so busy chasing after the things of this world. So captivated by the stuff that perishes. They're pursuing things that are shifting and changing, transient, a word the Apostle Paul uses. And true satisfaction evades them all their days. But it's not that way with the Christian. It ought not be that way. With the Christian. We are not those that chase after stuff. Evasive targets. No, we run towards our prize. And our prize is Christ. All that He is and all that He's done for us. Our prize is Christ. The the world 
doesn't understand this. The world doesn't know what ultimately satisfies, but the Christian knows. Dear brother, dear sister, you and I know. And it's time now that we dig into the text and see what help the Lord might have for us. And I think we will see King David is the author of this text that Thomas Vincent and King David were very much aligned in their perspective. They possessed the same sort of yearning and burning heart to see the face of Jesus. Now, let's read the text, verse 15 again. As for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, I hope to make sense of all the bits and pieces of this text. To do so, I've broken the message up into three simple parts. First, David's differentiation. Second, David's desire. And third, seeing and satisfied. So let's begin with the context out of which verse 15 originates. I think that's important. And we'll begin by looking at David's differentiation. You probably picked up on this at least a little bit as we read the text, the entirety of the psalm. But if you didn't catch on, let me make sense of this. The introductory note to the psalm. Did you see that? A prayer of David. This this is a prayer, the, the 15 verses that we have. This is David, not, not talking to people, but talking to God Almighty. It's, it's a prayer. And this is significant, I think. I, I believe it points to the heart of this psalm. You see, in the first 17 psalms in the Psalter, we've come across multiple instances already of psalms of David. There's even been a mictum of David and a shagion of David. This, however, is the first that we come into contact with in book one of the 150 Psalms that says a prayer of David. Though, of course, many of the Psalms, both before and after this Psalm, include bits and pieces of David's prayers. So here, in this prayer, we are once again confronted with David's oppressors and enemies. You see it in the text. It's the wicked who do me violence. And we see this theme over and over and over again in the Psalms. Which makes me all the more grateful for God's wise providence. Truly, God governs everything for his people's good. Even wicked oppressors and enemies. So in reading a Psalm like this. You might begin to wonder, even ask yourself the question, who has actually done more good to the church of Jesus Christ and his people? Is it the friends of the church or is it the enemies of the church? I submit it may well be possible that the enemies of the church have done more good to the church than the, quote, friends of the church. I think the regular psalm reader is bound to notice a certain providential pattern. It's the enemies of the church, the opponents of Christians like the opponents of King David, who throughout the ages have done far more good to the church and individual Christians than friends ever have. I I think if we didn't have such opponents, if King David didn't have these kinds of vicious, violent opponents, we simply wouldn't have 150 psalms. 
So it's out of the agony and suffering brought on by wicked men and enemies that so many of these psalms are born, including this, a prayer of David. Don't you see God's infinite wisdom in that? This then is the foundation for David's frame of mind, enemies, wicked men, when he prays what he prays in verse 15. This is the clear-cut differentiation that David makes. So step back briefly into verses 13 and 14. I'll read them now. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. He'll tell us who the him is here in a moment. Deliver my soul from him or the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, key phrase, whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. You see, David is praying that the Lord would deliver him from these adversaries. Yes? Good, we're on the same page. And in the midst of this oppressive moment, and I think David experienced a number of such oppressive moments, in the midst of these current threats, David makes this critical distinction Between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous or wicked are the people of this world. And as the text tells us in verse 14, their portion is in this life. And this is a key phrase we need to hold on to. It's as though the here and the now is all the wicked live for. It's all they have ultimately. This is their best life now. Eternity gets really bad and it's really long for the wicked. Now, now I've always appreciated the placement of Psalm 16 and 17. Just, just bear with me for a moment. In the previous Psalm, Psalm 16, David declares something wonderful in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen Portion. Now, now you're, you're seeing something here because he's mentioned the men of this world whose portion is in this life. And, and now we see the contrast all the clearer for the believer, for King David. His portion is the Lord. You see, prior to being born again, you and I were people of this world. You and I were totally bought in living for, seeking to be satisfied in things that are ultimately passing away. We we were hungering for the here and now, hating God, loving sin, the, the common grace satisfactions we experienced, satisfactions intending to point us to what is everlastingly and ultimately satisfying. We missed the point. We were blinded to it. But once born again, once resurrected by Jesus Christ, my portion and your portion, dear Christian, fundamentally changed forever. We saw that the things of this life could never satisfy us. Only the Lord satisfies the true believer. And this is the line that David draws in our text. This is his differentiation. This is why the text, verse 15, begins with those lovely words that I have quoted to my own heart a number of times. As for me. 
as for me. Now look with me at David's desire. You see, it's the contrast David pinpoints that seems to stir up this inward desire that he now expresses in verse 15. David is not one satisfied by merely having wealth or a big family, fathering children and leaving an inheritance like we read about in verse 14. In our text, David is hungering for what will eternally satisfy. And again, it's it's David's opponents that have been used by the Lord to drive David to this kind of prayer of intensity and desire. The opening words capture the intensity as for me. You could well put in your Bible an exclamation point right after the word me. As for me. It's emphatic. There's force to it. He's, he's saying that these enemies of mine, these worldly men, they can have their portion. They may get their good things in this life, but their portion is temporary. It's all going to come crashing down one day. As for me, my portion will never come crashing down. My portion is Christ forever and ever. Dear ones, can you say with David this morning, as for me? Can you make that distinction in your life? Have you so fundamentally been changed by the Lord that only He can satisfy you? As for me. You see, this text fully expresses David's desire and even expectation of life with Christ after death. Yes, That we find in our Old Testament as well as the New. David is clearly saying after death, after he breathes his last breath on earth, that something far greater, far more wonderful is about to take place. There is a great deal of language in the Bible where death is likened to sleep. Maybe maybe some texts come to your mind. Um... And and sleep then ends up in a believer waking up, mirroring the resurrection. Daniel 2, uh, excuse me, 12 verse 2 is is just one instance of this where, where we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But again there, the imagery, sleep. David is saying that when he awakes from that sleep of death, there's going to be one staring him in the face. And he's hungry for that day. He's hungry for the day, the moment when he sees Christ for the very first time face to face. Well, there's there's so much I think we can learn here that we should imitate here. Brothers and sisters, here's how it works. It's the adversity and pains of this present evil age that is intended to provoke our anticipation and longing for the age to come. The the very opposition that today wants to strip you and me down to nothing is the opposition that stirs us up for hunger for that everlasting day. 
You know, the Puritans would often emphasize that, that really there are only two days on the calendar. Now, I, I know you'd beg to differ. Maybe you've got a calendar hanging on your wall. Maybe you're old-fashioned like me. And there looks to be a lot more than two days on that thing. I see a bunch of squares in my mind's eye. But the Puritans were saying something significant. There are really only two days on the calendar. One, today. Two, that day. That's it. Today and that day. And the glorious reality of that day is that it's intended to make us more Christ-like today. Indeed, the reality of soon seeing the face of Jesus Christ is intended to change everything in the here and now for the believer. Likewise, the trials, tribulations, afflictions of today are intended to make us thirsty for that day. Do you see this? Dear ones, as believers, we have to be those always looking forward. Today and that day. For we are those who live in light of future expectation. We live as those who've wholeheartedly embraced the promises of God, believing that everything God said is true and it will come to pass and that nothing and no one can alter that. And so we live in great hope and anticipation of one day seeing our beloved in whom our soul delights. This was David's desire. Is it yours? Really, honestly, is it yours? Seeing and satisfied. This is where we'll camp out for the remainder of our time. The object of David's great desire. I want to unpack the text. As for me. And then there are Two things that David says. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. As for me, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now think with me, saints. I want your hearts this morning to run with this blessed theme. Here and now, today, we pray oftentimes in the gathered assembly, the ironic blessing, make your face To shine upon us. Yes? Hear me. In that day. In that day. When we awake to everlasting life. In that day. The face of our glorious Redeemer. Will forever and ever shine upon us. This is what theologians refer to as the beatific vision. Which simply means. The sight that makes happy. We don't need the fancy terms, do we? Just be content to know that it's the sight that makes happy. It's this moment that will make all earthly joys seem like just a drop in the ocean compared to the bliss of seeing Christ for the first time and entering into a life of enjoyment with Him forever and ever. Pleasures at His right hand forevermore. This is the moment of undying and indescribable bliss for the Christian. All the years of this life, as short as it is, 
all the years of hoping and believing and hungering and expecting and longing, in this moment, faith becomes sight. The expectation of an unmediated and unhindered view of Christ comes for the believer. And it's this sight that marks the end of all of our sighs. It's this beholding of His face that marks the end of every battle. Think of Scripture's testimony here. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen. Your eyes will behold the beauty of your King. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Excuse me. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Revelation 22.4, we read it this morning. They will see His face. Dear ones, if you are in Christ, this is your future reality. This is more sure than anything we know today. The altogether lovely one. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He will look you and me in the face, dear Christian, and say to us in that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. This will be the moment that David is speaking about in the previous psalm. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But let's get specific here. What exactly is David longing to see? He tells us, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Now, face is rather significant in the ancient Near Eastern culture. I think far more so than it is in our culture today. Uh, to come face to face with someone in David's day meant favor and friendship. Whereas to turn your back on someone in David's day was a sign of disfavor and disapproval. So for Christ to look you square in the face that day. How rewarding, how fulfilling, how precious, how long awaited that will be. Full acceptance because there's full pardon. Just think of the beauty and the intimacy of that moment. This will be the holiest and happiest and friendliest face you have ever seen. And it will be so familiar. You won't be guessing at who it is that looks you in the face. Because though you hadn't seen Him, yet you believed Him and you loved Him. And we will gaze into His face. We will peer into His eyes. We will be ravished by His smile. And we will be warmed by His embrace. Every feature of His face his person, His demeanor will overwhelm us with joy. And what's more, we're going to behold His face in righteousness. 
is what the text tells us. Oh, how I love this. I think it points to several realities maybe, but, but, but first I think this scene marks the time and the first moment really of total purity for you and me. We have entered in leaving this present evil age into a world of purity. We shall behold his face in righteousness. But second and, and far more special, I think, to me, here, is the once imputed righteousness of Christ to my account that has now and forever become actual and total righteousness in me. No more sin, beloved. No more temptations to sin. No more clouds between us and our Savior. No more divided heart in us. No more mixed motivations or slothfulness or weariness to overcome. No more deceit. No more distractions. Zero hindrances to beholding your Christ there. Are you hearing me? Absolute purity. No more sin. You ought to feel an eagerness rising up in your heart. Even as you hear this and ponder this text, we will behold His face in righteousness, brothers and sisters. And this is a reality that will never grow old. We won't ever outgrow this. Our cup will be eternally overflowing. And at the same time, our capacity will be ever increasing. More and more of the enjoyment of Christ. More and more knowledge of His person and work. You see, our generous and infinite God will never ever tire of showing us more and more of the riches of His grace and the immensity of His glory. More and more and more forever. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. After we have had the pleasure of beholding the face of Christ, for millions of ages. It will not grow into a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as remarkable as ever. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, said it this way. Fresh joys springing continually from his face. And he is as much to be desired after millions of years by glorified souls as at the first moment. There is a fullness in God that satisfies and yet so much sweetness that our soul still desires more. God is a delicious good. He says, Charles Spurgeon the English Baptist describes the scene like this. There is an inexpressible, indescribably infinite splendor in the face of Jesus. Are, are you all familiar with John Owen, another English Puritan? It's okay. He wrote a book. It's, it's quite good. He wrote a lot of books, actually. But this one in particular, The Glory of Christ. I believe it's volume one of his 12 volumes. On the very day that John Owen's book came off the printing press. He's lying on his deathbed. A friend rushed to tell him the great news. That his book had just been completed and printed. And Owen. Who had such insight. Into the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's what he replied. 
Ah, I am going today to that place where all that I have written in that book will be nothing compared to what I shall know and see. Face to face with Jesus Christ, beloved. Face to face. This is a critical component in how Christians can live well and die well. In peace, even in joy. I remember Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure y'all are familiar with that book. Part 2. The scene just before Mr. Standfast dies and crosses the river to go to the celestial city to heaven. And, and, And maybe for those that have read it, you'd remember what he said. He said, I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns. And that face that was spat upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. This is the heartbeat of the believer, isn't it? Even at death, the sight of the face of Christ puts an end to all our troubles and doubts. It's the perfect and everlasting answer to so many of your prayers. Beloved, we shall behold him and we shall be like him. Look at this last phrase where we move from seeing to satisfaction, satisfied in his likeness. I think this is very much in line what David says here in verse 15 to first John three two. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see how that's a fitting New Testament counterpart to Psalm 1715, don't you? John pairs seeing Christ and being transformed into the likeness of Christ together, much like David does here. But it's hard to imagine, isn't it? What even will full satisfaction feel like? What does that look like? To to put off mortality and to put on the garments of immortality. To, To be forever clothed in Christ's righteousness. To be, as the scripture declares, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that forever to be transformed into having the capacity to forever and increasingly forever delight in fresh revelations of God and His Christ. Are you ready for this, dear believer? Are you hungry for this? That's the better question. Because it's coming far sooner than you think. We will pillow our heads just a few more nights. And for those that are in Christ, we will awake to the most amazing reality ever. We will awake to the face of Christ. It's true. Do you think like this? And do you live like this is true? Are you imitating the Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford when he wrote the bride takes not by a thousand degrees 
so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we, in the life to come, shall not so much be affected with the glory that goes about us, that's around us, as with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. Will you run your race as though you will soon enjoy the sight that makes happy? Is beholding the face of Christ your heart's desire. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish evangelist and pastor, said, take us to the golden streets. Take us to the pearly gates. Take us to the songs, the thrones, the angels. And still we will say, but where is the God-man that died for me? Oh yes, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Think of some of the dying testimonies of saints that we admire. Even if you haven't heard about these, you you could trust me, they're admirable. Isn't it true that the last words of a dying person tell us a lot about their heart and hope? A snippet from the last words of Samuel Rutherford. Maybe I'll have sung the song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Is anybody familiar with that hymn? Uh, Ryan says yes. Okay, that's a Samuel Rutherford hymn. Um, A snippet. From the last words of Samuel Rutherford. He said, I shall shine. I shall see him as he is. And all the fair company with him. And shall have my large share. It's not easy to be a Christian. But I have obtained the victory through him who loved me. And Christ is holding forth his arms to embrace me. Now I feel, I believe, I enjoy, I rejoice My eyes shall see my Redeemer. I sleep in Christ. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with His likeness. Oh, for arms to embrace Him. It's reported that the last words of Charles Wesley, a famous hymn writer, even reference our very text this morning when he simply said, I shall be satisfied with Thy likeness. Satisfied. Or Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, systematic theologian. Last words, precious daughter there at his bedside. To his daughter, he says, why should you grieve, daughter? To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. And to be with the Lord is to see the Lord. And to see the Lord is to be like him. John Janeway, an English Puritan pastor, near the close of his life, he said, Oh, why this love to me, Lord? Why to me? Praise is now my work, and I shall engage in that sweet employment forever. Oh, help me to praise Him. I have nothing else to do. I have done with prayer. I have almost done with conversing with mortals. I shall soon behold Christ Himself, who died for me, who loved me, who washed me in His blood. Beloved, what do you expect to be thinking and saying in the last moments Of this life. I want to close with just another story. That I think illustrates well. The truths of this verse. It's the story. Of a man by the name of William Montague Dyke. You might be familiar with his story. 
When William was just a boy, 10 years old, he was blinded in an accident. And despite his disability as a preteen, William was rather intelligent. He studied hard, went on to the University of England and graduated with high honors. While he was in school, he falls in love with the daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer, and they become engaged to be married. Not long before the wedding, William is approached by a surgeon, a famous surgeon, who believes he has a cutting-edge eye surgery that may, may be able to give him back his sight. If it failed, of course, he would remain blind for the rest of his life, but optimistically, he takes the chance on the surgery. William insisted on keeping the bandages post-surgery on his face until the wedding day. If, if the surgery was successful, when the bandages were removed, the very first person he wanted to see for the very first time was his beloved bride. And so the wedding day arrived. And the many guests that filled the church that morning, including royalty and cabinet members, distinguished men and women in England, all assembled together to see this exchange of vows. William's father, a wealthy man, Sir William Hartdyke, along with the doctor who performed the surgery, they're there standing next to the groom whose eyes are still covered with bandages. The organ trumpeted, the wedding march began, the bride slowly walking down the aisle toward the groom. As soon as she arrived there at the altar, the surgeon took a pair of scissors from his pocket and began to cut the bandages from William's eyes. Tension fills the room, as you could imagine. The congregation of witnesses watch, holding their breath, as they wait to find out if William could see the woman standing before him. As he stood face to face with his bride-to-be, William's words echoed throughout the cathedral. You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. One day, the bandages that cover my eyes and your eyes, they're coming off. And when we stand face to face with Christ and see Him for the very first time, His beauty will be far more splendid than anything we could have ever imagined. And we will say, much like He said, you are far more beautiful than anything I imagined. Will you not cling to this hope, dear believer? Even on your worst days, will you not hold tight to this? And more than that, will you not run, brothers and sisters, while it is still day, and with all your might, will you not run for this happy meeting? Knowing that through every difficulty and every pain and every affliction, through it all, one day soon, you will see His face. And soon... Be satisfied with His likeness. Don't hold back the longing. Don't hold back the eagerness. 
Delight in Him. Anticipate that day. Worship your Christ. Long for His face. Pray with me. Father, only You can take the truth and penetrate the heart and mind. Do it for the sake of Your Son. Do it that the hearts of these believers would be stirred up in greater affection for Him. Do it that the unconverted here might finally see a glorious Savior and own Him as their own. Do it for Christ. Do it for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.